Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. If you take your Bibles and open them to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 1. Songs of great theology. They navigate our lives in the midst of adversity, midst of storms. We have an anchor in Christ. What a joy that is. Appreciate Zig. Zig, you know, continue to write those songs, bud. You know, the church needs biblical songs uh, today. So keep on writing, bud. Keep on looking to Christ and truth and He'll continue to inspire you to, to do great things for his kingdom. I want to read the three verses that encompass our study this morning, starting in, in verse 9. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of heavens, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Father, we do come to your word with the desire of the Spirit to teach us, to put things in context, to understand exactly your meaning of the text. We come to a, a, a passage that to some degree, can be kind of confusing. But yet, once we understand exactly what you're doing with this, it causes us to praise Jesus all the more. And so we love you and ask that you would teach us, Spirit, have your way with our minds and understanding. Be with your servant. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Somewhat of a difficult passage just because where it sets. If you were with us last week, we were able to unfold the forerunner, the last Old Testament prophet who preceded the Messiah, as scriptures proclaimed, the one who would announce Jesus as God's appointed Messiah. And of course, that last Old Testament prophet is John the Baptist. Or literally in the Greek, John the baptizer. Not only did, did John wear strange clothes that symbolized his message, but he clearly came with a message of repentance, of getting right with God. The message was full of wrath, of judgment, so much so that it cost him his life as he pointed out King Herod's sin. But the call was to recognize your sin and be ready or, or make ready your soul, your heart for salvation from the Lord. 
John preached, tell fire and brimstone message of judgment, which is often lost in today's churches. Prepare the way for the Messiah. And according to verse 5, we see something very interesting here. Thousands of people were coming. They were coming to, uh, from Judea and Jerusalem. They were flooding to the Jordan River to be not only hear his message, but to be baptized. And we know the reason why. If you look at the end of verse 5, it says, because they were confessing their sins. And putting this timeline together from all four Gospels, by the way, all four Gospels mention in most likely greater detail, they do, as opposed to Mark's account here. Remember, Mark's writing to Gentiles as he's very succinct in his approach. But we get a lot of color from the other Gospels. We knew that Jesus was about 30 years of age, according to Luke chapter 3, verse 23. You can see it on the screen. When it says about Jesus, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age. We can also discern that John the Baptist had been preaching for about six months up to this point. And so the scene is set. John the Baptist is at the Jordan River. Thousands of people are flocking to him, gathering to listen to his message. Many of them are going to the waters to be baptized. And the call was to repent. And baptism was the symbol of a heart getting right with the Lord. Of course, the hand of God was on John preaching, so much so that people were trying to figure out and ask our rightful question, John, are you the Messiah? Are you the anointed one? We see this in Luke chapter 3, verse 15, by when it says, now while the people were in the state of expectation and were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John the Baptist responds, in the following verses, he says, As for me, I baptized you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His willing fork is, is in his hand to thoroughly clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with the unquenchable fire. John clearly states that he's not the Messiah. But there is one who is coming, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And notice that he said that this Messiah is one who will separate the wheat from the chaff. chaff excuse me. Or as Jesus would say later, sheep and goats. Wheat and tares. All these parables that Jesus taught told us that there's only two groups of people in this world. Those who are saved and those who are not. And then comes the moment of truth. By the way, this is the only interaction that we have of John the Baptist talking with Jesus. Jesus shows up. He shows up, up at the Jordan River. And it's remarkable to see what John says. We know in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29, 30, John the Baptist sees him come, and it says there, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf on whom I said, After me comes a man 
who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I mean, what a scene. It's a public display. He's still preaching repentance. Jesus shows up and he says, look, there's the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus points, or excuse me, John points to Jesus as the Messiah, a clear testimony before thousands of people that this is God's anointed one. And then in a few, four words, a few words, excuse me, my throat is sore. But at the end of verse 30, John points to the deity and divine nature of Jesus by saying he existed before me. Did you notice that? I mean, that's a little nugget of proof. A truth, why? Because if you think about it, in the, in the scope of earthly being born, the incarnation of Jesus came after the birth of John the Baptist. Yet John the Baptist knew that Jesus was divine, that he had always existed. And so he says that Jesus existed before me. John would like to say we would preach another six months after this encounter. Uh, <clears throat> like I said, his head was put on a platter by the wishes of the king's wife because the king's wife was, didn't like his message as he pointed out her sin. Now, all that sets the stage for what we see in, in, in going on in verse 9. And, and we have two questions that we have to ask of the text. How does this reconcile with John the Baptist preaching a message of, of repentance and Jesus desiring to be baptized. It says in verse 9, if you look with your eyes again, it says in those days, speaking about the scene of, of John the Baptist and the people flooding there, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. By the way, Nazareth in Galilee is a small little place. It's kind of a hole in the wall. Scripture would say, does anything good come out of Nazareth? But here he comes and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately your, your mind starts to race a little bit here. It's, it's, it says, Jesus was baptized? Didn't we just understand John's baptism was a call for repentance and baptism was that symbol? And what is very strange, in the construction of the Greek, if you notice that word Jesus came, it's actually, there's an infinitive there. It's an infinitive of purpose, and it means that Jesus literally came for the purpose of to get baptized. This was Jesus' purpose. So the question that verse 9 proposes is, why did Jesus come and want to be purposefully baptized by John the Baptist? Now, our theology tells us very quickly that Jesus never sinned, right? For him to be this Messiah, he could not have sinned. Scripture tells us very clearly. Hebrews 4.15 tells us, the writer says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And then in 1 John 3, 5, 
it reads, you know that he, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, Jesus, there is no sin. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 and through 23, tells us that if you have been called, for you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found on, on his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So what's going on here? you got a sinless Lord approaching the rivers of a repentive message, and he wants to be baptized. I mean, Jesus knew exactly what John was preaching. Word had gone out. He knew that God had sent him to preach repentance for your sins. And not only that, according to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 3, we get this interaction with John the Baptist and Jesus. And even John the Baptist was somewhat confused about this. That interaction gives us actually great color exactly what Jesus is doing here. Look into this conversation the two had. Matthew 3, starting in verse 13, it reads this. It says, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized. Infinitive of purpose again, to be baptized by him, but John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? John the Baptist was very hesitant to baptize Christ. But we get the answer of this question that, that kind of perplexes us. Jesus responds to John the Baptist in verse 15 of Matthew 3. And he says this, but Jesus answering said to him, Permitted at this time, for in this way, and this is key, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. It was fitting for Jesus to be baptized for us to fulfill all righteousness. That is the answer. And it needs a little bit of explaining. Jesus worked as the Messiah in his life, as well as in his death. Theolo theologians call this vicarious, which means it's, a, it's an interesting word. There's a vicarious atonement. There's a vicarious righteousness going on here. It's defined, that word vicarious means that a person suffers for another in such a way that the other need not to suffer. It means that one suffers instead of another who deserves to be suffering. This speaks about substitution. This speaks about the fact that Jesus is representing salvation to the world. He identified not only in his humanity with all those whom he would go to the cross for, but even in his atoning death, he atones for the sinner, a substitute. I think we get that when we think about Jesus going on the cross and dying for us, don't we? But now listen to me. If Jesus had only paid for our sins, he would only take us back to square one. What am I saying here? 
Sure, we would no longer at that moment be guilty of our sins, but we would still have no righteousness to bring God on judgment day. And this is the point of Jesus' baptism. Jesus, to be our Lord and Savior, the Messiah, not only needed to die and atone for our sins, but he had to live a life of perfect obedience, of complete holiness. And in so doing, his righteousness that he, that he manifested that could be transferred to all those who put trust in him. Do you see what's going on here? Jesus paid for my sin. He atoned for my sin by going to the cross and taking the wrath of God for me. But in that transaction of, of taking the, the wrath of God for our sin, Jesus says, and by the way, I've fulfilled all the law. I'm going to impute my righteousness to you. Now, this is remarkable to think about when you think about Christ so that when you stand in front of him on the day of judgment, God is going to see Jesus' righteousness. He's going to see Jesus' atonement applied to your account. And he's going to say, because of Christ, come on in. Come on in. God is going to see Jesus and his atonement for your sins and his righteousness in you. And the righteousness of Christ will be given to your account in this imputed righteousness. And I don't know about you, but that is just flat out awesome. To think about, there's nothing that I bring to the account of being saved, and yet Christ is the Savior who has atoned for it all and even given you the righteousness, the holiness of God. Let me give you some verses. Take your pen. According to Matthew 5, 17, we know that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. It says there exactly that. Matthew 5, 17 says, do not think that I come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus never sinned. And he's the only one that has ever fulfilled the law. So knowing that, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, he made him, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. And did you notice what it says at the end of that verse? In him. So that we might become righteousness of God in Christ. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 24 and 25, and he says, And he himself, speaking about Christ, bore our sins in his body on the cross. There's the atonement. Why did he go to the cross to bear our sins? Purpose clause here, Peter says, so that we might die to sin and live to, what does it say there? Righteousness. For by his wounds you are, were healed, for you were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd, the guardian of your souls. Beloved, I mean, you think about what's going on here. This transference of, of not only paying 
an atoning for your sins, but in this imputed righteousness that transforms your life and accounts credits Christ's righteousness in your life causes one to worship Christ all the more. What Jesus is showing us here is that his task as the Messiah was to submit himself to every word that proceeds out of God's word. Remember, I mean, the law, the law, the law. You commit one law, you committed them all, you are condemned. Nobody could fulfill the law until Jesus came. And we know, according to scriptures, that if one could fulfill the law, he could stand in the presence of God Almighty. And so he's showing us that his task as the Messiah was to submit himself in obedience to every aspect of the law and fulfill it. So that, and and here's what kind of gets our mind going, so that even though he was not a sinner, he sought to submit himself to baptism to identify with John the Baptist and the rest of the sinful humanity. He is going to be the substitute. He's going to be the one who's going to stand in the gap. He is going to be one who represents all sinful mankind, yet without sin. In order to fulfill all righteousness. And so when you think about salvation in this gospel message that that, that Mark points out in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he points to this reality that you can only come through Jesus, through repentance and faith in him. Yes, he forgives you of your sins. He writes your names in the land's book of life. He imputes his righteousness into your life so that on the day of judgment, God will see you in his son. And like I said, say enter into heaven for eternity. Jesus was not only vicarious in his suffering, but he was a substitute or vicarious in his righteousness for you, for us. I think you understand that, right? You can't earn heaven. There's not any righteousness that we have in and of ourselves to earn. We must need this imputed righteousness that that can get us to the place where we can stand before the holiness of God. That is why Jesus was baptized by John to point to this coming substitution, right? The beginning of his public ministry in front of all the people. Everybody was was flooding there. Symbolic of the nature that he's going to stand in the gap, die for their sins, and impute righteousness to their life. But there's more. Verses 9 and 10 lead to another question that is... What is the significance of God ripping open the heavens? I mean, you got this dynamic. Jesus goes, he gets baptized, and then it says in verse 10, immediately, which is one of Mark's favorite words, this is an action type of gospel, immediately coming up out of the water, verse 10 says, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And, And a voice came out of heavens, you are my beloved son in you. I am well pleased. Now, what's going on here? Remember, this is the first public event of Jesus and why he came and why he was sent. This is to start his public ministry. The Gospels are very clear on this. 
It's in front of thousands of people. He goes to the water, gets baptized publicly in order to fulfill the law and in turn be that substitute that sinners need, not only in atonement, but in righteousness. And then God shows up. Now, if you were to look at scriptures, every time that God shows up, it's often with signs and wonders and display of the mighty hand of God showing his hand. And that's exactly what you got to see this. The Trinity, the Godhead, shows up. you got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, all showing that this is going on. And God speaks. Literally an audio voice, right? It's, they can hear it with their ears. Everybody there heard this, and he says, you are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. I mean, you talk about getting in line with God's agenda. This is it. God is putting his authority, his stamp of approval, that this is my Messiah. Here he is. Not only has it been testified through John the Baptist, but here it is by ripping open the heavens and declaring that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, there's some questions that you got to ask yourselves about exactly what's going on here as far as the descending of the Holy Spirit. Does this mean that Jesus finally got his deity? Did Jesus become? The Gnostics believe that. That Jesus actually became deity when the Holy Spirit came. That he was only human. And then God imputed this, this, this Holy Spirit into a dwelling Jesus and he became God. Well, let me quickly say that would be blasphemy, Right? That is not what is happening here. So what you have here is that God shows up, and each distinct person of the Trinity is there, and they put their stamp of approval of the Messiah, that Jesus is the anointed one. Remember, it's been 400 years of silence. And God moves in a big way and displays it with clarity and with direction. He's showing us that he is divine. Now, with the significance of the Holy Spirit's descendant upon Jesus, by the way, it's a metaphor, right? It's interesting to me how sometimes we think the Holy Spirit is a dove. It's not what it's saying. In the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, the distinction, the, the third person of the Trinity is like a dove. And the answer here, pretty simple, is to connect the dots. If you were a Jew living that day, trying to figure out who is the Messiah, you're looking to all the Old Testament, trying to figure out all the prophecies so that you can be clearly understand that this is God's Messiah. And that's what's happening here. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. Not only does God speak, but he, he shows the, the mind of the Jew that, that this is prophecy being fulfilled. Isaiah, in his prophecy, made it very clear that when the Messiah comes, he will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Look to the screen, Isaiah 32, verse 15. It says, until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field is considered as a forest. The note there is the very first part of that verse, until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. The Jews believed and knew that the Messianic kingdom and the Messianic prophet here 
and he'd be full of the Holy Spirit from up high. Isaiah 42 1 says this, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Those prophecies that the Messiah would be marked with, and Jesus is demonstrating this. He's fulfilling these things. He's showing us that he is Messiah. Now, since you look at the other gospel accounts, John gives us some insight to what's happening here. John chapter 3, verse 34, it says, For he whom God has sent, speaking about the Messiah, speaks the words of God. In other words, he's divine. And it goes on to say, For he gives the Spirit, and this is key, without measure. Jesus Christ, by the way, is the only one to receive from God the Holy Spirit without measure. When you think about your ecclesiology, when you think about when you're saved, the Holy Spirit distributes certain gifts, spiritual gifts to yourself. But you don't get the full measure of that Spirit. He determines and dictates exactly what that looks like and equips you with certain spiritual gifts for the sake of the body of Christ. But for Jesus, he was given the Holy Spirit without measure. Jesus Christ is the only one without restriction. He has the full measure of the Holy Spirit, the full presence, the full power of the Holy Spirit came down and rested on his humanity. I mean, when you think about Christ, everything that he did from then on out, I mean, just all the power of what's going on displayed that, this unity of this Godhead. I mean, everything that he did. It's important to understand that he, not that Jesus became God. He was already God, but the demonstration of fulfilling these prophecies and having the, I mean, this is just so beautiful. It literally says in the Greek that the heavens were ripped open. I mean, this is a dramatic, you ever rip your pants or something like that? It's a dramatic action. And this word in the Greek is only used twice in the New Testament. Once here, and once when Jesus goes to the grave and the veil is ripped from top to bottom. Why is that so significant? You think about the bookends of, of using that word with even in the New Testament, the beginning of a public ministry saying that I am come to save, I've come to give you my righteousness, I've come to die for your sins. And in the end, the completion of his life was to rip the veil, saying that now heaven is open, the veil is torn. God ripping and displaying his grace his mercy in his son, Jesus Christ. All of this, like you say, this action of baptism, Jesus had no sin. All this was to fulfill that the Holy Spirit was going to descend on the, on the anointed one, the Messiah, fulfilled in his baptism. By the way, when it comes to baptism, I mean, this is another cry in verse 10 where it says about immersion. By the way, when we think about the word baptism, it's about a little translation of the Greek. It means immersion, 
And there's no sprinkling going on here. Immediately coming out of the water. So that helps you understand a little bit of why we do immersion baptism, believer's baptism. That's a side note. But all this was to make sure that we got it right. That Jesus is the Messiah. That he is the anointed one. got this visible action of the Spirit descending. You've got God speaking. And what he says, he gives this messianic title to Jesus, right? A voice comes out of heaven, verse 11, You're my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. This again was the affirmation of Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus said in John 8, 18, He says, I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father sent me testifies about me. This is a testifying moment where God the Father says, you, Jesus, are my beloved son. You are the Messiah. By the way, this messianic term, son of God, appears in in, in the Gospels roughly over 250 times. I mean, it's all over the pages of scriptures. We know this to be a messianic title because the Jews understood Psalm chapter 2, or Psalm book 2, verse 7, as exactly that. And verse 7 tells us that I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. They were looking for that, that God was going to put his stamp of approval on his Messiah. And he gives that title to Christ. I said 250 times, it's only 50 times, excuse me. But what does it mean? What does the Son of God mean? It means that he is one in essence with God the Father, that he has the same nature as God. It's about being co-equal and co-eternal. It's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, where the writer makes this connection of Christ And God, when he says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Co-eternal, co-existent. When we think of Christ, we think of God. When we think of God the Father, we think of God. When we think of God the Spirit, we think of God. And what a joy. What a joy. This is what's going on in these short few verses. And for us, the takeaway, when we think about Christ's baptism and his act of submission, his act of understanding that his you know, from our perspective, this side of the cross, Jesus comes to forgive us of our sins. We identify with that salvation in Christ when we go to the waters of baptism. 
We recognize his atonement. We recognize the fact that his imputed righteousness is in our life. I mean, what a way to start out this, this gospel. John the Baptist comes, tying prophecy. Jesus comes, tying prophecy. And then Jesus launches his ministry. And you think it would be, if that was public, it would be public as well. But as we will see next week, the Spirit leads him to the wilderness to be tempted. And we'll look at that, Lord willing. But this baptism of Jesus is important for our understanding, and I pray you walk away with that. Understanding that Jesus submitted himself as the substitute to not only atone for our sins, but to declare that he has the power of righteousness, and he has the power to give it to you. That you can look at your salvation and understand that there's no other means by which I must I be saved. And God clearly shows us this in these three verses. I guess my call for you is that you would not trust in any other thing. You think about how detailed and how exact and how all the prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus and how he comes and how he displays his deity and how he gives his life on the cross as, as he resurrects from the grave, as he ascends to heaven. This is God's means of salvation and God's only means of salvation. I mean, it, it's going to be a joy to be able to run through this gospel. It will take us a few years. But what a joy to see God doing what he is doing here. I mean, you trust in him. I mean, you trust in him and not the church. I mean, you trust in him and not your own baptism. I May mean, you trust in him and not even your own church membership. And you trust in him as the only one to forgive you of your sins, impute his righteousness, and allow you to stand before God. Amen? Let us pray. Father, again, we thank you for the day and the morning. A truth that no doubt gives us more clarity on why Jesus was baptized and why he submitted himself to that. It was an act of obedience from from the, from the Messiah. It pictured for us the accomplishment of what he would do on the cross. In this transaction of removing our sin and imputing, giving us his complete obedience, his righteousness. We marvel at that. Jesus, we... Words cannot express how much we continue to fall in love with you. Our only hope is in you. Our only desire is you. We continue to unfold the joy of this great salvation that God has demonstrated and, and for you have orchestrated in this Godhead. This was your plan from eternity past. And because of that, may we embrace it. For no doubt, there are some here, even online, who are pondering the things of life, trying to understand if this is really true. And Father, 
the truth is clear. You have demonstrated in such a way that you have sent your, your servant, the Messiah. The cross is real. The resurrection is our hope. All these things come to pass, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. May you draw the sinner. May you give them hope. May they understand that there's a submission of repentance of sins and, and yet receiving in faith the one who has been my substitute. Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. May salvation be theirs by the drawing of the Spirit, by the truth of your word, and confession and belief come. And so we love you. And may they respond in such a way that they want Christ. And so we love you. And we pray for those who are, who are walking in the faith, Father, that you continue to strengthen them. Continue to make our faith be clear, made sight in such a way that we long to see you face to face. May we continue to run the race. We pray these things. And the mighty one who has come, the one who has saved us and given us his righteousness, the one who will come again. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.